in October 1989, and only a few weeks later, three weeks later, on the 9th of November, the Berlin Wall came down. That was actually a mishap uh, uh, on part of the GDR regime. They wanted to make it easier to travel to the West, but they did not want to uh, uh, open the border completely. But the, uh, <laughs> funnily enough, the spokesperson at the time of, 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 the, of the government, he made a mistake and simply miscommunicated what had been decided. And he said, well, the border is open as, as of now. And that was in the middle of the night. So people started crossing the border. And we all know the pictures. So, uh, and that, that was the beginning of the end. So it's 9th of November, 1989. 3rd of October, 1990, reunification happened. So it was not even 11 months later. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Our topic this time is Irish Unity, Lessons from Germany. That's the title of a recently published paper by Professor Tobias Locke, who's the Jean Monnet Chair of EU Law at Bindouth University. And I'm very glad to have him here with me today. And also with me is Professor Aoife O'Donoghue of Queen's University Belfast School of Law. So you're both most welcome. Uh, Tobias, maybe you could kick off by just telling us a bit about the, the scope of the paper and the questions you were trying to uh, ask and answer in it. Well, yes. Hello. Um, what I've been trying to do is I, I wanted to provide a legal analysis um, and I wanted to provide a comparative legal analysis uh, for two reasons. The first is I'm a, I'm a legal scholar, so I can't tell you very much about the politics, uh, politics or the economics of unification, but I can tell you something about processes and, and, and legal questions. And the second reason is that I'm, I'm German. So uh, I thought, you know, uh, I, I should probably contribute to the debate uh, from, from that uh, angle. And um, so that and, and that also explains perhaps the limitations of the paper. I mean, there are there are so many themes that one could explore, also in a comparative perspective between Ireland and and Germany, uh, the economics, the the social security questions, uh, institutional questions, all of those things. But I can really only speak about uh, law, uh, and 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 perhaps and and that is something uh, I should mention. I mean, I I I do mention issues that you know the 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 key the key problem certainly or the key challenge with with Irish unity would of course be uh, what to do with the unionists in Northern Ireland, and and obviously Germany doesn't give us uh, an example or give us a solution for this, um, and 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 because I'm only a lawyer, I can't. I can't really dwell on about it. So I, I mentioned it as, as an issue, but I can't provide you with any solutions for it. And that is, of course, a bit disappointing, maybe for some who, who might read the paper. But I hope that uh, the paper nonetheless um, uh, um, shows uh, some of the challenges and some of the things that need to be thought about purely from a, uh, the point of view of, 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 of uniting two uh, jurisdictions uh, with the end result of having a functioning legal order and a functioning state at, at the end of it. Uh, and that, that I hope, I, I, I was able to do. Yes, absolutely. You, you certainly did, in, in, in my view. And as we were agreeing earlier, questions of process um, in diplomacy and politics can be almost as important as questions of, of substance. Um, maybe just for our listeners, you might, and I'm asking you to fit the proverbial um, quart into the pint pot, would you give us a very quick sort of recapitulation of the different stages of German unification, which occurred very rapidly, as one recalls. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, if, as, as, as most people, most listeners will probably know, I mean, Germany was divided after the Second World War into East Germany, was German Re Democratic Republic, GDR, which was a, was a socialist uh, state, and West Germany, which was the 
Federal Republic of Germany, the name that the country still has, uh, that's the official name of, of, of Germany, Federal Republic of Germany or West Germany, uh, as it was uh, called, which was, you know, a, a, and is a Western style liberal democracy, very much influenced by American and British and to a lesser extent, perhaps French ideas of how things should be run. Um, now, in, in, in the summer of 1989 or throughout the summer of 1989, uh, GDR citizens started leaving the GDR. They couldn't do so directly. But what they did um, is they went on holidays in other eastern uh, states, Hungary in particular, but also the Czech Republic. And they were able to cross the border to the west from there because these states started opening up their borders. And and that led to a mass exodus of, of citizens as hundreds of thousands of people left the GDR that way, usually younger people, the ones that, you know, were still actively uh, involved in in, in in employment and all of that. So that provided a, a challenge to the GDR. And that was then coupled with uh, the so-called Monday demonstrations, which started in Leipzig. So every Monday, people used to come together and, and challenge the regime. And they said, we we are the people. That was their slogan. Wir sind das Volk. We are the people. And they were asking for democratic for reforms i mean uh, a more democratic uh, gdr um this then led to the resignation of the of the long serving uh, chief of the state erich honecker um and in, in october 1989 and only a few weeks later three weeks later on the 9th of november the berlin wall came down that was actually a mishap uh, uh, on part of the gdr regime they wanted to make it easier to travel to the west but they did not want to uh, open the border completely, but the, uh, <laughs> funnily enough, the spokesperson at the time of, of of the government, he made a mistake and simply miscommunicated what had been decided. And he said, well, the border is open as, as of now. And that was in the middle of the night. So people started crossing the border and we all know the pictures. So, uh, and that, that was the beginning of the end. So it's 9th of November, 1989, 3rd of October, 1990, reunification happened. So it was not even 11 months later. Mm. Uh, so what happened in between was a, a cascade of well events and and and, and negotiations and 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 trying to pull things together uh, in 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 at, at at lightning speed really when you think about it. So Helmut Kohl, who was the Chancellor of the, of West Germany, uh, leader of West Germany, announced very quickly at the end of November his own ten point plan, which was largely words, but it 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 led the way towards reunification. I mean, at the time he spoke of a confederation of the two German states, which is interesting because, you know, that changed very quickly to, you know, reunification. But still, I mean, he uh, set the pace and and that, of course, caught the GDR on the back foot. It also caught those in the opposition of the GDR, I think, on the back foot, those who wanted reform of the state, but they didn't want reunification. They wanted to stay in a socialist state, you know, uh, but that 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 wasn't going to happen. So, Kohl and his his government realized, okay, we have to uh, get a few things in place. Most important thing was uh, negotiations with the former allies, Second World War allies, who still had some reservations as to German sovereignty. Uh, so they, they 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 had to give their consent to reunification. Of course, uh, they also had to make sure that the GDR stayed on a on a, on a on the path of a peaceful transition rather than the military being called in. So it was very important to get the Soviets and keep the Soviets uh, sweet, uh, which they were able to do because Gorbachev was in power. Again, his reign was not stable, which is important to remember. So maybe he would have, uh, so that might, which might explain the speed at, at, at which all of this was conducted. So what happened then, next big step, was really that the, the first free elections happened, the first and only free elections of the GDR in, in March 1990. They uh, resulted in uh, the 
Christian Democrats, uh, basically uh, the, the, the mirror image of the of the of, of Helmut Kohl's party and some coalition partners, broadly speaking, from the center right, winning uh, the election. And they had won on a manifesto promise to effect German unification as quickly as possible. So that was the decision made for German unification as quickly as possible uh, and not going down the route of two German states and seeing how it goes. And, you know, I mean, having a more democratic socialist state in the East and, and, and the, the, the Western Germany that we know. Soon after that, that new government uh, took office, soon after that, uh, the European communities, as they were then called at the, at the sub, Dublin, uh, Dublin summit. So here in, here in Ireland, uh, so Ireland had a role to play in all of this, uh, agreed that you know, unification could go ahead and that East Germany would automatically be part of the EEC and certain things were agreed. We can get back to that later. And then the first important thing happened. There was a treaty on monetary, economic and social union. So what happened was interesting is that the, the economics preceded the politics uh, in terms of reunification. So the first thing that was introduced into the GDR was the German mark, D-mark, at a very favorable in, uh, favorable exchange rate for East Germans, one-to-one. -one. Uh, they were able to... They, so, so there was a monetary union in, in, in May uh, 1990. Uh, there was also uh, um, an intro the introduction of market economy, which they didn't have, of course and uh, of, of the German, West German social security uh, system. And then there were negotiations were ongoing between the, 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 the powers, the four uh, allied powers uh, from, um, from the Second World War and, uh, uh, and, and the two Germanys on the one side and then inter-Germany, inter-German uh, negotiations about the precise ramifications of uh, how uh, unification should happen on the other side. And, and all of these treaties fell into place in August and September, respectively, and then October, 3rd of October, that was the day of, of unity. And that was it. Uh, shortly thereafter, we had elections first for the for the Länder Parliament. So Germany is, of course, a federal uh, republic. So we have a state level, a level below the federal level. And uh, there were five new uh, states uh, in, uh, in East Germany had, had been reformed, re uh, so re dash formed uh, uh, had to be uh, that had to be done uh, will had been done in during during the GDR's lifetime and then in December we had the first uh, federal elections and that was the end of you know that was it done yeah basically I'll come to you Aoife just in a second but what an extraordinarily quick um, sequence of events as you say from the 9th of November to the 3rd of, uh, of October less than 11 months um, and also of course I suppose Looking at at these superficially, the differences from the Irish situation are very considerable. I mean, clearly, this was a, an event of a major European and international geopolitical importance. The reasons for the division were very different. I suppose the economic situations were much more different um, than um, you know than they would be in our case. But equally, there was no question of a sort of division on grounds of identity or otherwise. So, but there are many. Interesting parallels as well, as we'll, as we'll get to. Uh, Aoife, you wanted to come in. Yes, uh, it struck me as I was reading the article that it seemed to be slightly unclear how much of it, and I'd be interested in your opinion to base on this, how much of it had to do with the pre-existing legal structures, that the assumptions in the Constitution, for instance, um, that there was one Germany uh, in the West German Constitution. As a as kind of a, a foregrounding of constitutional intent, but also I suppose going back further that that Germany had been one state, in a similar way to the way you know if we go back a hundred years there was you know a single polity on the island as part of a much broader 
like how much of those sort of older legal structures, which meant there was some commonality in the law, the law came from the same place, people understood law in very similar ways, but also the way that, you know, a constitutional structure, which is pointing towards uh, a possible combined unity, how much impact did that in setting up the way that the politics moved and the swiftness of the politics? Did that assist the swiftness that, you know, people, there was a common understanding of law? I'm thinking here in the in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, for instance, the common law, you know, there's common, there's parliamentary democracy, there's, you know, very similar structures, um, economic structures would be quite similar from a legal perspective as well. So do you think that, it, 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 did those assumptions assist in the speed at which, everything else got to move um sort of the the, the prehistoric the prehistory of unity as one polity but then the sort of assumptions built into the system that that was a likely future place to end up if not absolutely the future a, a likelihood yeah that's that's a very good question i mean i mean west germany was certainly uh, founded as a provisional entity it was never meant to last uh, for as long as it did i think uh, it was always meant to reunite with East Germany and initially also with the kind of eastern bits of Germany that were uh, 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 ceded to, to the Soviet Union and Poland, which then, you know, in, in the 1970s, uh, West Germany gave up its claim on. Um, so so that was clear. But from a, from the GDR's perspective, that was certainly never envisaged. The, I think the original constitution of the GDR still wanted or at least mentioned, name-ticked, uh, Unification, but the the constitution that was in place in in in, in 1989, which I think uh, dated back to 1968, if I'm not mistaken, that didn't mention anything about unification. They did not want to be reunited with the West, not even as a, as a socialist state or anything. They wanted to be something separate. They were the anti-fascist state, whereas the West was the fascist state in their view. So, um, so that's so that's one one thing. But certainly, I think it 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 helped to have this general consensus that reunification at some point should be happening. Uh, I think that that was there in West Germany. But I think that's also there in Ireland. I mean, the, you know, the Irish state was always meant to be as a, a, a provisional a thing uh, uh, waiting for reunification or unification to happen. Um, the, the the one law thing is, is an interesting one because, I mean, East Germany certainly didn't have the same law as, as West Germany. And while it, it would have had uh, that in, until obviously 1945 or even preceding that, I think the, 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 the lawyers uh, from, from the East, they, they would have had to relearn quite a lot, I think. Uh, now, I'm not an expert in, 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 in private law and how how different the, 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 the civil uh, code of the GDR was to the, to the civil code of West Germany. But um, there, there, there wouldn't have been that much of a common understanding, I don't think, uh, in, in that sense. Um, so in that sense, it would have been, would have actually be harder, uh, would have been harder for, for, from an East German point of view uh, than it, it would be in, in the Irish case, where I would imagine that, uh, you know, a, a Northern Irish uh, common lawyer uh, will relatively easily find their way around whatever the United Ireland's law will be. I mean, it's not going to be dramatically alien to them. So um, so, I th I th so to, to answer your question, uh, uh, yes, I think that the, the, the fact that the structures were there and the fact that the constitution was always meant to be, uh, meant to be open to, to unification certainly 
made things easier. But I, I think by the time 89 came around, nobody really believed that that was going to happen in, in, in their, you know, during their tenure as, 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 as a government or, you know, uh, even, even in, in the next 10 or 20 years. I think it came very surprising to them. I suppose I, I should say here that I was a, not even a fly, maybe a, a tiny bug um, on the wall in April um, 1990 because I was at the European Council in Dublin Castle, which Ireland held because in those days there was a rotating EU presidency. I think at times we've tended to, especially in speeches and so on, claim more credit than perhaps we deserve. We happen to be the hosts rather than the organisers of the event. But nonetheless, it was a great achievement. And my colleagues in foreign affairs who, who were subsequently ambassador to Germany told me that it was always something they could reliably depend on in conversations with German leaders um, about the past. And in fact, Helmut Kohl, even into old age, was very, very emphatic about this whenever he met Irish Irish colleagues. Um, clearly, Kohl's extraordinary speed owed a huge amount both to his own political instinct, I suppose, but also the very, you know, febrile international situation. And I suppose he wanted to establish facts on the ground as, as quickly as he could. But maybe we could move on to talk a bit more about questions of phasing and timing. You've talked about the period up to October or to, up to December 1990 and the elections and things were decided in principle at remarkable speed. But presumably not everything um, was fully tied down. Not every I was dotted and every T was crossed and by then. No, it wasn't. Um, so it's 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 quite interesting to I mean it's 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 perhaps boring for anyone who's not who's not a lawyer uh, but uh, for for those of us who are interested in these kinds of things it, it is quite interesting to actually look at those treaties those two treaties that were concluded the one on, on monetary economic and social union and then the actual treaty on unity mm. and I mean obviously they were they're technically treaties uh, concluded between two more or less sovereign uh, states. But in reality, they were, of course, uh, written by West German mm. civil servants, and and the lead uh, on this was Wolfgang Schäuble. I mean, he was the he was he was in charge of all of this as as a political lead, uh, and, and he's he's quite a decent lawyer, so I suppose he had some input in that as well. And um, they they are written basically like legislation, so they 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 they're, they're very 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 thorough pieces. But also, what they do is they go through through uh so they, they they used the structure of 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 german ministries at the time the portfolio of german ministries so they went through those and they basically looked at every piece of legislation that these ministries were in charge of and they uh said okay this is going to enter into force here and there here we're going to have certain um um, um transitional uh, uh, uh some some phasing in and phasing out of gdr law so i mean a lot of gdr law was you know fairly inane politically as a family law or or uh, even even some basic contract law would have been uh, uh, fairly inoffensive um and so so they, they were phasing in and out uh, certain certain gdr rules uh phasing in federal german rules and, and phasing out gdr rules they they used a technique of instructing the legislators i mean you know obviously in, in a federal system you have two uh, sorts of legislators so they instructed the different uh, legislators to pass legislation on certain topics uh, with with a, a certain policy steer, I would think, which, of course, can be done because this was an international treaty. So the Federal Republic later on was under an international obligation to, uh, to, to, to transpose that obligation into domestic law. Um, so that, th those, those are some of the techniques that they, they, they would have used. And um, so it's quite, quite interesting to read this. Now, obviously, you have to be 
an expert in, say, uh, social security law in order to fully appreciate what, what they had actually done. They, they were the techniques that they were looking at. So they, they decided certain substantive questions in those treaties. Others, they, uh, they, 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 they shifted onto the legislators. Others still, they decided certain things should be phased in and phased out at certain points in time. So you can, you can play with time a lot, I think, in, in, in these kinds of scenarios. And that uh, they used to, to great effect, I think. I'll ask Eva to come in in a second, but Tobias, have you any idea how long did it take until all of the phasing in and phasing out was complete? Uh, at what point were the two Germanys, you know, absolutely on the same footing uh, across the different areas of policy and law that you mentioned? It uh, took a very long time. Um um, obviously, the, the beauty of having a federal system is you never have to be completely on the same footing. Uh, so that's quite nice. So there, there will still be certain quirks, uh, uh, in, perhaps in East Germany, that uh, you know us Westerners don't don't know anything about. But um, as far as I know, up until I mean, I don't know if I, I should have checked this in, ahead of this podcast. But for instance, uh, East German civil servants were paid less than than West German civil servants, even if they were employed by the Federation. So even if they were federal employees, and that was particularly nasty if you were living in Berlin, because you could have been from the West and you were paid 10% more than the person next to you uh, who was from the East. And I think that is still ongoing, uh, as far as I know. Uh, so you ha you have that. So there's still a few hangovers. And obviously, in, in certain other areas of law, like property law or a family law where you, you need uh, legal certainty, uh, certain GDR, you know, divorce judgments and uh, uh, GDR uh, uh, acquisitions of property. They're still obviously around they, and they will never go away. I mean, that's 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 the way it is. Um, so but it it, 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 it took. Uh, I, but I think the bulk of it, I mean, I would imagine it w was done within about 10 years or so. But I I can't uh, give, put a put a clear number on this, but it, it, it took it took a long time. Yeah. Aoife. I think that 10 years is a really interesting number because I think there's a lot of assumption, even in the legal discussions, that it will happen very quickly and that all, all those things will be ironed out as opposed to it naturally just taking a, a very long time to get these things done because you are talking about masses masses of law. One of the things I found interesting is, and in my own research on, on this question is the idea of authorship and, and who's writing up, you know, who's involved in drafting, who's involved in writing, and probably more particularly who's not involved. So the way you've, you've described sort of the treaty writing sort of is very technocratic and bureaucratic. And of course, that is one way to take the politics out of it. To take the sting out is, is to make it a, a technocratic exercise. But I suppose in the history of say, the first constitution in Ireland, you know, it was written basically from Westminster. There is a sort of history of technocratic writing of constitutions and structures, but also of treaty writing. And this thing, what makes the Northern Ireland scenario really interesting because, you know, the Good Friday Agreement is both an international treaty and we won't make comments about the UK's current view of whether or not it's bound by international treaties or not, but they, you know, there's an international treaty, but there's also a local party. The parties amongst themselves have also signed an agreement and that that model is, is a slightly different model to what we have in Germany, that you, you do have the two states Naturally enough, you have London and Dublin who will you know, have to decide things like pensions, etc. That kind of monetary discussion, taxes, pensions, all those things will have to be decided. But there's also that local 
uh, sort of parties in Northern Ireland who are used to it in a way that I think in the Republic we're not quite used to having that sort of level of representation of various interest groups. So it, it does, we, we don't, so that, you know, we would accept that the unionist community would have to be represented in some way. But say, for instance, the traveller community or feminist groups or the New Irish, that there are these multiple different groups that perhaps we, we need to think about in ways of, of authorship and then ownership going forward in ways that perhaps hasn't existed in the Republic, but has existed to the extent of the Northern Ireland Agreement because it has that local authorship and ownership of the bit that's active in Northern Ireland beyond the kind of dual treaty. And I think that that idea around authorship and who gets to be who gets to be involved in deciding those questions, which I mean, from one perspective, yes, we can make it technocratic and that might make it faster. It might make it uh, take some of the politics out of it, some of the heat out. But at the same time, you also have that question of ownership and the need of, of ownership of this transition, um, which I think is probably a bigger disparity between Northern Ireland and the Republic than we've, I think, hitherto understood in the idea of how, how these agreements will become to if the discussion or when the discussion, if and when it does start, start, start happening uh, to a huge extent or a deeper extent. I think to me, it's interesting, of course, is that I suppose Schäuble and his team um, in a way felt that probably correctly that they had a, a sort of a broad democratic mandate after the elections in the East um, where the Christian Democrats had done so well. So it was two governments of, led by the same party, effectively, in the two parts of, 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 of Germany. Um, and was there any, I mean, was there any significant pushback uh, to the kind of the, the process as it unfolded or were some people simply you know brought along by the desire for unity and a, a sense that you know it, it had to be done quickly and there was no point agonizing too much over it no i i well there, there was some pushback or so was there was some attempts at pushing back um it's, it's it is really interesting what Aoife is saying and i think uh if i had to make recommendations uh i i, I would recommend trying to involve uh, a broader uh, set of, of 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 people in in you know making these decisions they're really important uh, basic decisions about wh- how how the new state uh, should uh, function and 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 what it uh, should uh, you know what aims it should pursue um so they they it's it's interesting in the sense that in the GDR itself uh, it all started as a grassroots movement i mean it was you know a peaceful revolution of sorts but the grassroots were uh, quickly uh, supplanted by elites, Western elites, predominantly, um, and that that so on, and those grassroots, those this kind of civil um, uh, civil rights movement that there was, which was very much f- uh, rooted in, in in the churches actually, because they were the only kind of free semi free spaces where people could uh, assemble and, and and have a frank discussion. Um, they were disappointed, and 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 they tried to come up with a with a with a, you know with a with a with a constitution for the GDR as, as as a modern state. It was actually it's actually a really interesting document. is was also drafted by uh, GDR citizens, and they brought in some some West German uh, uh, law professors, among them Bernhard Schlink, who's mainly famous now for his uh, novels rather than the, the law. But you know he's, yeah. he's still a very very respectable and respected uh, public law professor in Berlin. And um, so he, uh, so they drafted actually a very, very interesting constitution, which had very modern rights. I mean, you know, there was a, I mean, they were very progressive, but being very progressive for 1989, 1990, they had a right to die and, you know, 
right to 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 bodily integrity and right to bodily uh, self determination those kinds of things that we might nowadays want to maybe put into a, a constitution not everybody perhaps but uh, some of us um so so th there was that that but that attempt was uh, di didn't you know didn't go very far in in the west we had i think that the left broadly speaking was very skeptical of of quick reunification and maybe even of reunification as such, they might have preferred this kind of two-state model, at least for a good while. And that was born out of uh, uh, the, the anti-imperialism that the West, mm. uh, the left in, in, in West Germany had certainly uh, grown to, 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 to embrace. Uh, they did not want to go back to, to a greater Germany, Großdeutschland. They did not want to go back to German remilitarization uh, beyond uh, what was already there that even was too much for them they did not want this uh, germany be the dominant power in europe the biggest state in europe uh, and so on and so on so th there was a lot of skepticism there not so much because they loved the gdr they didn't really i mean you know the german social democrats were certainly no fans of the of the gdr but uh they they would have liked to have seen two germanys you know coexisting uh, as as cousins or or, or brothers and sisters uh, rather than um um uh, the 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 quick reunification but they they lost the election i mean that that was the end of that in a funny way when you talk about constitutional structures and even adaptation of domestic law i mean i i can see analogies imperfect of course almost with the process of eu accession that in a sense it's a question of one territory or one country essentially adapting itself to the structures and arrangements of of others um in other words, it's not really a two-way process. Yeah. And I mean, so so just to confirm, I mean, it was essentially a question of the existing co constitutional arrangements staying in place, but with East Ger with formerly East German members of the of the Bundestag and the, the five new lenders that you mentioned and so on. Yes, it was. Uh, and that was, I think, also an opportunity that was missed uh, at the time. I mean, I think the German, the, the basic law was... was relatively open as to how unification should be achieved. So there was this famous Article 23, which was the accession mm. solution that was used actually in 1957 with the, with the Saarland, which is, you know, the, the bit, of, bit of Germany on the French border, which was under, under French control after the uh, Second World War. That acceded to, the, to, to West Germany under uh, uh, basically being slotted into the existing structure. The question was, was, was that the right way forward for the GDR? And some people argue, no, we should be using Article 146, which was the final provision in the in the in the Basic Law, which said, well, the German people, this 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 constitution shall uh, remain in force until the German people, uh, well, give themselves a new one by by popular vote. So th should there be a new constitution that was then approved by referendum? And um, I think uh, one of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons Kohl uh, was against it was because they quite liked the the Basic Law. It had it had worked. It was the most successful constitution Germany had ever had. We had had some bad experience with the Weimar Constitution, which was not a bad document, but it just didn't work. Um, and so they were reluctant to let it go. It also suited uh, the, the Christian Democrats in terms of its values and all of that. They didn't want to change things too much. They didn't want to have social rights and all this, you know, uh, GDR legacy that one might have maybe uh, uh, wanted to include uh, uh, represented in the Constitution. They wanted the the, the, the clear... Uh, liberal or libertarian, almost Western orientation of the constitution uh, to be preserved. And uh, it would have taken an awful long time uh, to write a new constitution, to have it debated, to have it uh, um, uh, voted on in a referendum. However, I, I think it would have given East Germans a sense of agency over the process. I mean, they were they were the, the, 
the objects of the process, but they were not really in the driving seat at all after they had voted uh, to, uh, you know, in, in the first free elections in, in March 1990 to say yes to reunification as quickly as possible. But after that, they were very disappointed. And there was there was a lot of resentment on, on their part. Obviously, that was also because the economy didn't do as well as they would have expected. There was high unemployment, lots of change uh, coming their way. And, you know, uh, but there was a lot of disappointment, I think, uh, also about the fact that they hadn't really been involved in the same way or in a way that they could have been, and 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 uh, if that had happened, maybe maybe that kind of disappointment wouldn't wouldn't have been there to the same degree. Who knows? I mean, obviously. Yeah, a topic which has come up um, more than once in in this series and in the Irons papers uh, is the potential conflict between those things which absolutely have to be done in the context of constitutional change, those things which is almost certainly necessary or desirable to do. And then the wider range of other issues, often policy issues, whether how you organize the health service or or, or, or policing, whatever it might be, which which need careful study. But perhaps there isn't the same level of, of urgency or necessity to making the change. Um, and this obviously, you know, but the German approach, as you say, the West German approach was very much to to forge ahead. Uh, Aoife? And I, I think a lot of that discussion about what what we should talk about first or second or the is the you know comes back to the order in which things happen and also I think presumptions about what might be problematic or not because there is the the model of of slow change of the constitution that say David Kenny talks about or there is the constitutional convention. We, you know, as a, a new uh, instead of talking about it as unification or reunification, talk about it as an entirely new polity, and then as a new group, as a new island, we then, you know, that and this comes up in Tobias's paper about there being a mandate to come back to things. You know, you have to come back within twelve months. That there has to be a new constitution within two years. That you can you can inbuild those processes because I think you've also got a very and I think this is across the island, a very constitutionally literate society, but I also think a lot of assumptions. So there's, a, there's sometimes I think in these discussions could be assumptions about things like national anthems and flags and things, and an assumption that some, or the Irish language even, that there's an assumption that that's a problem without actually asking groups, is that a problem or is it not a problem? Or is in fact the health service and I think actually the health service is much more likely to be something of distinct interest on the island, given you know you have the NHS, even if it is currently under huge amounts of pressure in the north, and we don't have it uh, in in the republic. And about the things, you know, the difference between things that theoretically can wait for reform, but actually might be more significant on a day-to-day -day vote than things that we think symbolically might be important. But in reality, people are probably a little less upset about that. We just assume that people are going to either want to keep something or definitely want to get rid of something or um, or even think about relationships with with the crown in England and how those relationships could, could evolve or change. That I think there often I think we tend to to and I think there's a lesson there from Germany about you know, it was the economic issues, it was unemployment afterwards that, that made people resentful. You know, there, there, it was the bread and butter issues and probably less the symbolic issues that we 
I think sometimes here in Ireland, on, on both sides of the border, or even in, in the broader discussion involving Scotland and Wales and England as a sort of much broader discussion, which I also need to think needs to come in, you know, how, how we'd relate to all different parts across the island, that, that also needs to be there. And I think that's it, it's interesting the way that Tobias think talks about the sort of potential mandates towards the end of the article that you could put in about certain things have to be discussed within certain time periods afterwards in order for things not to be put on the long finger, which things that in fact, in reality, on a day to day basis may may be very much of import to people and less so sort of the the, the constitutional issues that the less perhaps the symbolic ones are the less important constitutional issues in reality. And I think that does come back to authorship as well uh, and, and who's involved in making decisions about what we should start with or not start with. No, no, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I just suppose that it's probably you can make a decision you can, in theory, make a decision about an anthem in 30 minutes if somebody writes a new anthem and everyone agrees it, whereas putting in place a new health system for the island is maybe a different, uh, a more challenging question. But I agree with you in terms of level of importance. And in fact, our last podcast was precisely about this. It was about participatory democracy and about the uh, issues which you know, groups of of, of people on the border um, and women and, and you know younger people had put forward as, as major concerns for for them. Tobias, um, just maybe we could come back to the international and the EU aspects. And, and just to recall that, of course, you do, you do point out uh, in the paper that Ireland, uh, the Republic, would be the successor state internationally. And so all of our international obligations would remain uh, unaffected unless we, we wished to, to change them. And that was the case in with the Federal Republic of Germany as, as well. Um, but again... Um, would you like to say anything more about as the the broader sort of international law or EU law uh, questions? Well, I think I think it's important to realise. I mean, that is of course an important point. I mean, you know, a, we often read about the new Ireland. There would be a new state and all that, which is of course maybe politically true, but it's not true uh, from a from a purely legal point of view. I mean, Ireland, as it exists today, the Irish state, uh, the twenty six counties would be the state, and the six counties would be joining this state. And uh, so uh, Irish EU membership would continue automatically unless Ireland does an IREXIT uh, uh, on top of <laughs> on top of unification uh, and, and Ireland's uh, international obligations, UN membership, uh, membership of all sorts of uh, international organizations, treaty obligations would all continue as they are. And, you know, they might have to adjust a few treaties to make sure that they also apply uh, properly to to what is now a greater territory, but a greater seas, but that's about it. Um, what's important about international uh, inter uh, negotiations is, of course, that uh, realistically, Irish unity can only happen after negotiations with the UK about the terms. Now, obviously, we know from the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which is an international treaty, as well as a community uh, agreement, uh, as Aoife has pointed out, that uh, what the process, broadly speaking, would be uh, for Irish unification, you need a majority, a simple majority of people in the north voting in favour, and you need people in the south also voting in favour, and that's the end of it. That's the question decided whether unification should happen, but how it would happen is, of course, mm. a, a big question as well, and that would need to be partly negotiated, I, I, I would say. Now, obviously, there are certain pillars already in place. We've got the Good Friday Agreement and certain um, uh, obligations, you know, uh, the birthright provisions and all of that, they are 
uh, both states, the UK and Ireland, have agreed that these should continue, even in case of a united Ireland. So Ireland would have to honour that uh, as the as the as the new uh, new state, or the, the not new state, but the, the state that is going to absorb uh, Northern Ireland into it. Um, but uh, you would also need to agree an awful lot of other things. I mean, what do you do with pensions? Or who's actually going to pay for them? Uh, who who owns the the hospitals and who who owns the military bases? And where, by what uh, time does Britain have to move out certain uh, installations? And what do they want to keep? What do they want to ditch? And and you know all of these questions uh, questions about uh, uh, nationality uh, uh, rights. I mean, you might want to revisit the common travel area. Uh, rights, maybe put them on in, 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 into actual writing rather than having them as some sort of a gentleman's agreement uh, as, as they are at the moment. What uh, guarantees would Britain give to those in Ireland, uh, in the new Ireland, who consider themselves British? Would they still be allowed to vote? And, you know, all of these things. I mean, all of that, uh, I think, needs to be put down in writing and, and, and agreed. So there would have to be international negotiations and there would also have to be some form of, of negotiations within the EU not so much that you know the the, the 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 big policy decisions would not need to be made, but you need transitional uh, arrangements again for you know EU law applying to Northern Ireland. What do you do with fishing quotas and all of those things? All of that would need to be agreed as well. And then obviously Germany introduced monetary union before political union, and that is a decision Ireland would not have the competence to take at the moment. I mean, as, as long as Ireland is in the euro and, you know, as long as Ireland is an EU member state, it will be in the euro. That is a, a matter that is for the EU uh, to co-decide, at least. Yeah, that's true. And of course, there's also the question, I suppose, of uh, the, a possible Irish um, obligation in regard to the UK national debt that was in the uh, Anglo-Irish Treaty of, of 1921. Um, and there are other other important issues as 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 well. And, and I suppose one of the interesting things is that a lot of people say with Brexit in mind, well, it's really essential that we should know the answers to these questions before we vote. Uh, on the other hand, of course, um, there is every reason to believe that, you know, there won't be a very willing, that unionists will not wish to participate in such a discussion before a vote. And indeed, that the British government um, might wish to hold its cards to its chest on questions of public finance and so on, in case it be accused of swaying the vote one way or or the other. Um, we're just coming to the end of our time now, but uh, Aoife, did you, before I ask Tobias kind of sort to sum up uh, and his thoughts about any other lessons for Ireland, um, maybe would you like to make some final comments? Yes, and thanks, thank you, Tobias, because I think it's a very useful article in that it sets out you know, a model of how things can happen and the most likely model, because there are other places like um, which have unified or have broken up or have founded two new states like Czechia and Slovakia. But I think the German model, and I think it's probably the model that in Ireland, uh, I suppose, because it's in, in that sort of uh, not only in living memory, but a, a focal point of people's political imaginations in Europe that makes it such an interesting example. Um, I, I suppose one of the things... Uh, would would be curious to to know is that so many years after the event, are there any big regrets that that those who were involved would have had? Not about unifying Germany. I, I don't mean it in that sense, but about the process or the you know not taking the moment to rewrite the the constitution and create a new constitution or to or, or other things. Do you think there are any any I suppose? negative lessons to, to, to learn from it, things that, you know, roads not taken that perhaps might have been better better thought of now if, if you could if people had their time back again. 
That's an excellent question. I haven't heard anyone regretting. I mean, politicians don't like regretting things in, in public, I think. Uh, and I watched quite a bit. You know, there's an awful lot of information out there because of all the jubilees we've had 25 years, 30 years. And they put up these websites of, of full of videos and things. If you can speak German, you can watch them uh, for, for, for months on end, I would think. Um, I haven't heard anyone regret things, uh, uh, but that, I mightn't have uh, listened enough. Uh, I think the ones who were not involved, the, the you know the civil rights people and those, they they did probably do regret that and they they resent that still. Um, but that's that's all I know. Uh, <laughs> so I'm I'm very sorry about that. Um, I, I can't give you any more uh, detail on that. Just just before I finish with you, it's just one other little point. I think you do mention in the article is that of course at the European Council. Um, in late April 2017, um, there was an acknowledgement um, concealed in the minutes of the European Council. It wasn't part of a, a set of conclusions at the time because, strictly speaking, wasn't relevant to a mandate for a Brexit negotiation, essentially confirming that the German precedent would apply in, in Ireland. And it's funny because to those of us who were involved um, at the, on the official side at that time, it seemed kind of obvious. Um, but at the same time, it was politically an important point for Enda Kenny, especially. But also, I can recall about a month or two before that, I, I met the former president, Mary McAleese, and she told me that this was a big concern for many people she knew. You know, what would happen if there were, you know, would Northern Ireland find its way back into the EU? So I think it's important to recall that particular precedent, um, that the German president has explicitly been agreed uh, as the, the model. But... Any final thoughts to be us? Anything we haven't covered or anything you'd want to, to stress in, in finishing? Well, I, I think there's, there, there are a few you know, conclusions or per, possible lessons. I mean, the first one is really to, to be aware of the, of the limitations of what can be done in a very short time. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean I, I'm no economist, uh, but I, I mentioned in the very end the state, state capacity issue. I mean, what can you actually do as a, as a small country? I mean, Germany at the time, West Germany was 60 million people. So it's a, a good bit, 12 times as big as, as modern, modern, the modern Republic of Ireland. And they managed to do it in, in 11 months, you know, quite well, but, you know, with, with limitations as well. So uh, uh, how, how would the Irish state be able to cope? So I think the preparation is, is important to have thought about things and even just thought about techniques of kind of postponing certain decisions that would have to be made. The second thing then is um, uh, that, that there is a certain danger that the status quo will prevail, right? I mean, I think you know we're all you know as, as, as human beings, you know, if we have something that works, why 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 fix it? You know, I mean, uh, uh, when it's not really broke. So I mean, that there is a danger that you know, like happened with the German West German Constitution with the Basic Law, that was a decent, good constitution that proven itself to be working. Uh, no revision was, there was a revision plan for the constitution. It was put into the Treaty on Unity. After two years, we're going to revise the whole thing and have a, you know, have a, have a big chat about it. But obviously that resulted in basically nothing apart from some cosmetic uh, changes. Uh, and, and, and something like that, I could imagine happening with, with Bunrach Naheran as well, because, you know, it's a constitution that, you know, is working. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's been, it's, 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 I think it's the oldest constitution in force in, in, in at least in the European Union, certainly. Uh, and it's 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 still there, so it's it's a successful uh, model. But you know, just saying oh, we're going to revise it at some point uh, is is not enough. You have to have a firmer commitment if you if you really want to create a, 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 a constitution for all. Uh, you have to have an expiry clause or something like that, so people have to actually react mm -hmm. and do something about it. So I think 
uh, having harder commitments, especially on, on reforms, especially if, if Irish unity would happen quickly. I, I mean, I, the way I would imagine it, but that's completely plucked out of thin air. You can't, you can't delay things forever. So, I mean, a vote happens and then you can't say, well, we're going to think about it for the next 10 years and then we'll come up with something. No, you have to deliver on the vote and you can't lose that momentum. And, you know, people would get very angry, obviously, those who voted in favour of it if it didn't happen. So I think... Uh, you, you will have to work with, you know, provisional arrangements, but, you know, it's, it's important to make sure that those provisional arrangements then don't become permanent arrangements unwittingly. It was just because we're too lazy or too busy to <laughs> to to come up with something new. So, you know, have firm commitments, have firm uh, uh, expiry clauses and that 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 will get people uh, thinking about these things um, and, and, and acting. Tobias Locke um, and Eva O'Donoghue, thank you both very much indeed for a really stimulating conversation. And I heartily recommend Tobias's article to everybody. Um, there won't be a, a podcast next month. We're taking August off, um, but we can be heard again in uh, early September um, when I hope to be talking to Professor Brendan O'Leary. Thank you very much indeed. Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.